grain. Will the rest of you open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 12? It's on page 687. Isaiah chapter 12. Someone's a really good whistler. Um, Isaiah chapter 12, page 687. <laughs> um, we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 6, the whole of chapter 12. Isaiah chapter 12, page 687. It says, In that day you will say, I will praise you, O Lord. Although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away, and you have comforted me. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. In that day you will say, Give thanks to the Lord. Call on His name. Make known among the nations what He has done and proclaim that His name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for He has done glorious things. Let this be known to all the world. Shout aloud and sing for joy, people of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel among you. I was reading about this uh, Presbyterian church conference in Nebraska, and apparently uh, during this conference, it, at some point they had like a worship service, and they gave everyone in the service a helium balloon. And they instructed the people, if at any point in the service you feel like expressing your praise to God or your worship of God or the joy of your salvation, you know, let the balloon go, so that throughout the service you kind of see all these balloons going up in the air. I mean, first of all, that's like the corniest thing I've ever heard. Um, you know, who, who conducted this, uh, you know, seminar? Was it like the Wiggles or somebody? I don't know. It was this sort of bizarre thing. And plus, doing this to Presbyterians is really kind of sick, if you think about it, because Presbyterians are not really known for expressive worship. You know, if you, if you feel like you're going to cry in a Presbyterian service, it's kind of like, you know about this, but that's about it. Yeah, Presbyterians don't really express that way. So the idea of Presbyterians holding balloons and letting them go, I don't know, it makes me laugh. But, you know, all the cheesiness aside, what I thought was interesting at the end of this story was that when the service ended, there were still like a third of the balloons that hadn't been let go. And it made me think about this whole topic that I think our, our text is about. Uh, the Christian life should be marked by many things. Christians should be marked by obedience. They should be marked by holiness. They should be marked by um, honesty. They should be marked by sacrifice and service. But there's also a mark of Christianity that we sometimes can forget. Joy. Happiness. Uh, gladness. You know, real joy coming up from our souls. There should be within the Christian life... Kind of like a carbonated beverage. There should be this sort of stream of, of joy and praise that's always there, that's always just kind of trickling up, even when all uh, circumstances around us are negative and bad. There's something that should be there within a Christian that's joyous, uh, that's part of the Christian life. I know this is difficult for us here in New England because you know, we, by nature, uh, hold in suspicion people who are overly happy. You know, like, you know, what's wrong with you, buddy? You know, you can't be a little more cynical. I mean, you can't, can't be that good. 
Uh, so this is a little different for us to think of being happy. And I'm not saying that you have to go around, you know, just being slap happy and silly all the time. Because life is hard. Life has its challenges. And yet there should be a consistent, deep inner joy in the Christian life. It's a mark of being a Christian. What are the fruit of the Spirit in uh, Galatians chapter 5? The evidences of the Holy Spirit in the Christian's life. Uh, Paul lists them. He lists nine. He says there's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Number two is joy. Right after love should be a, a joyousness in the Christian life. It should be a mark of all Christians. And, and yet so often it's not. Um, now why should Christians be happy? What is it that should make us happy? And I think the answer is we should be constantly joyful. We should always have a happiness somewhere in our soul because Jesus Christ has saved us. It's the joy of our salvation. No matter what the circumstances in life around me, I always know that I have been saved from hell for heaven forever. And that should always inspire me with joy. I think that's what the text is about. This is a text about rejoicing and praising God. It's a text about letting your helium balloon go. Uh, about praising the Lord. It says in chapter 12, verse 1, In that day you will say, I will praise you, O Lord. Although you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you've comforted me. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord is my strength and my song and He has become my salvation. With I love this uh, verse. Isn't this great? With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. That's a great image. Joyfully drawing up water from the wells of salvation. Even in the desert when you're hard and it's hot and you're dying of thirst, we go back to the wells of salvation. That's where we joyfully draw up the life-giving water that our souls need. It's from our salvation. Now, uh, it starts out in verse 1. In that day, you will say. So the prophet Isaiah is looking down the historic corridor into the future and he sees a future period that's going to be marked by joyous praise to God. And he calls it in that day. It's kind of his code word. Uh, he repeats it again in verse 4. In that day you will say. And we, we have to ask the question, well, what day are you talking about? Well, it's the day when the Messiah comes. Because if you look back at chapter 11, verse 10, uh, which is what we studied last Sunday if you were here, uh, he, he says, in that day... The root of Jesse, this is a code name for the Messiah, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the people. The nations will rally to him and his place of rest will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the remnant that is left of his people. So, so this future period when the Messiah is going to come and God's going to restore his people and save his people, that's when we're going to just bubble up with praise and rejoicing in God's presence. In that day, you will say, I will praise you, O Lord. And the primary characteristic of this future period is salvation. It's the salvation that produces the praise. If you notice in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 12, you'll see the word salvation repeated three times. Uh, verse 2, Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And any time you see something repeated in, in a text, of course, that's typically where the primary emphasis lies. So this is a text about rejoicing specifically because of salvation. It's our salvation that produces those bubbles of praise and happiness and joy that should be constantly kind of 
trickling up from within the believer's soul, regardless of outward circumstances. We, we can find that there. Um, maybe we should stop for a minute and define salvation. You know, it's one of those church jargon words, and I, don't know, I, I have a thing about church jargon words. I'm always nervous about just using them because, uh, you, you know, this, those words you just say over and over, but you kind of forget what they mean. So, you know, what is salvation? What does it mean that God has saved us? What does it mean to say, I've been saved? Are you saved? Have you had salvation? You know, Christians talk like this. Well, like, what does that mean? Well, I mean, salvation is um, a rescue. It's deliverance. It's escaping one thing and coming into another thing. Or another way to think about salvation is salvation always includes two prepositions. The preposition by and the preposition from. To be saved means that you're saved by something, from something. Anytime you talk about someone being saved, there has to be a by, there has to be a from. So if you said, uh, oh, I was down at Nantasket Beach and I suddenly saw this lifeguard just tearing across the beach and he's in the water. And then I realized there was a kid out there drowning and, and he got the kid and brought him and did some CPR and the, the kid was saved. No, all right, the kid was saved. Right, who was he saved by? Lifeguard. Who was he saved from? Or what was he saved from? Drowning. So there's always a by and there's always a from when you talk about salvation. So when we talk about biblical salvation, you know, there's got to be a by, there's got to be a from. Who are we saved by? And I think that's pretty easy. God, right? God is the by. It's is right there in verse 2. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. In fact, it's not just that God saves us, that God is salvation. I mean, He is it. And this is one of the major themes of the Bible, that God is the Savior. That uh, the people are not saviors, men are not saviors, that the nations cannot save us. In fact, the whole message of Isaiah chapter 7 through 12, where we've been studying lately, uh, 7 through 12 is, is a sort of a literary unit within Isaiah. It's sort of the main message of that whole chapter is trust God. If you want to sum, uh, summarize uh, those chapters, 7 to 12, it's trust God. God can save you. Don't trust the Assyrians. Don't trust King Ahaz. Don't go to the mediums and spiritists. Trust God. He's the Savior. God is the one who saves us. We're saved by God. But then what's the second half of the equation? We've got to be saved from something. So if we're saved by God, what are we saved from? And what's interesting is that the, sec the answer to the second question is the same as the answer to the first question. We are saved by God from God. Look at verse 1. I will praise you, O Lord. Although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away and you have comforted me. So God saves us from God. It's kind of a funny thought. God saves us from himself. He saves us from his anger. Now, we, we hear about God being angry, and we kind of go, oh, wait a minute, is God angry? Does God really get angry? I don't know. I don't like to think about God that way. And part of the problem is when you hear the word anger, we typically think of human anger. You think of the guy on the expressway, you know, it's rush hour, traffic is not moving, apparently his air conditioning is not working, and he's just, you know, <clears throat> you know honking and screaming and... You know, just flipping out in his car, and we think, well, you know, is God like that? Well, no. God's anger is not a peevish, irritated, selfish, you know, childish loss of control. When we talk about God being angry in the Bible, it's a, it's a very measured, appropriate response to sin. God's anger has to do with the fact that he's holy and he's just. And as the just, holy God, he hates sin, which he should. 
And if God sort of went, ah, sin, no big deal, he wouldn't be a good God. But because he is good, because he is holy, he is angry at sin and rebellion. So, so God's anger is not some freaking out guy on the expressway who's just lost control. It's, it's his appropriate, holy, measured response to sin and evil in the world. And if he wasn't angry at sin, then there would be something wrong with him. But as the holy God, this is his response against sin. Uh, so, you know, think about it this way. God made everything. God made me. God made the, the trees. God made this world. God made you. You're breathing right now because right now God is allowing your lungs to continue working. Uh, the money you have is a gift from God. The job you have is a gift from God. Your family and friends. He's given me so much. He's, just, he's put me almost in the Garden of Eden. If I didn't know there was a Garden of Eden, I might think I was in it because of all the good things he's done for me. And yet, what have I done? I've rejected him. I've come to him on my terms when I felt like it, which typically means when I'm in trouble. <laughs> I, uh, I, I do things on my own. I break his commandments. I, I've, I've broken all ten commandments. I can say that. You know, if not literally, in my heart, because Jesus said if you hate somebody, you've committed murder. And have I, have I fantasized about killing people? I have. <laughs> Haven't you? I, I've fantasized about... I've actually made pictures of killing... No, none of you. But, you know... Uh, <laughs> I've committed you know, murder in my heart. I've, I've broken his commandments. I've broken his laws. I have definitely not treated him as if he were the worthy God that we were singing about. I've definitely not behaved the way my mouth was just singing the words of these songs. And, and so he's done all this for me, and I've totally committed treason against him. What I deserve is for God the judge to slam down his gavel and say, Guilty. Take him away to hell. That's what I deserve to happen. I deserve for a couple big burly angels to grab me and cast me into hell. That's what I deserve. But instead, I'm standing before the, the judge. He raises his gavel and he says, Pardoned. What? Don't worry, I'm not mad with you anymore, Jeremy. I want to comfort you. It's okay. What? That's where the joy comes from. It comes from being rescued by God from God, from the judgment that I deserve. And man, if that doesn't give you joy, if that doesn't make you go, whoa, you know, I don't know what will. I mean, that, that's the greatest news you will ever hear in your entire life, is that Jesus Christ died on the cross so that instead of God's wrath and anger, which I deserve, I'm going to receive God's forgiveness and, and mercy. And it should produce rejoicing in the soul. Our salvation is the ground of our joy. Uh, this made me think. This passage made me think of a passage in the New Testament, the Gospel of Luke, and I'd ask you to turn there. Luke chapter 10, uh, page 1028 in your your Bible. Luke chapter 10, page 1028. I thought of this other story that it's the same idea. It's it's about rejoicing in our salvation. And here we jump forward to that day. Remember Isaiah said, in that day you will say, well now we're in that day. It's the coming of Jesus the Messiah. And uh, just to give you a little background, Luke chapter 10 is the story of the sending of the 72. In other words, Jesus, you know, he had his ministry going, he was preaching, he was healing, he was casting out demons, he was raising the dead, he was healing the sick. And then at some point in his ministry, we kind of forget this, but he actually took a sabbatical or something, took a weekend off, and he sent out all of these teams to do ministry. And he sent out 72 of his disciples, 
He sent them out in teams of two, so there were the 36 uh, two-person teams, and they went out all over the countryside and basically replicated Jesus' ministry. They taught what Jesus taught. You know, they've been listening to Jesus for a couple of years. Now, you go out and say the things I've been saying. In fact, Jesus also somehow delegated them to them his supernatural power to be able to heal and to drive out demons. So you basically had 72 little Jesuses, you know, kind of, walking around the countryside in teams of two, just going everywhere, healing, preaching, casting out demons. And uh, I want to pick up the story in verse 17 when these guys come back from their mission. And as you can imagine, they're pretty stoked. Uh, that would be cool if you got to go out and do that. Verse 17. The 72 returned with joy. And they said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. I mean, stop and think about that. That'd be pretty darn cool, wouldn't it? If God gave you the power to heal the sick, to, to drive out demons, and to preach in his name, I mean, you'd just go off in the streets. You'd go to the nursing homes. You'd go to the hospitals. You'd just be preaching about Jesus, healing people. <gasps> you know, I'd start my own TV ministry. You know, it'd be great. <laughs> you know, Jeremy Rennie, Healing Crusades, you know, whatever. Um, isn't that what people do when they have that? Anyway, uh, uh, you know, I'd go out and I'd, I'd be healing people. I'd be having this big thing. So I'd be stoked too. I'd be so excited. I'd come back. Woo, I'd be filled with joy. You wouldn't even believe it. Even the demons run away when I say, go out in Jesus' name. And for a moment, Jesus rejoices with them. Look at verse 18 and 19. Jesus uh, affirms their joy. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Satan's uh, kingdom was being overthrown as the gospel was being preached. Verse 19, I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions. Snakes and scorpions being a common uh, metaphor for demons in those days. I gave you the authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the powers of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. Like, yeah, that's great. No wonder they're happy. No wonder they're fired up. But then look at verse 20. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Think about that. You know, yeah, yeah, guys, it's really cool. You're healing the sick, raising the dead, driving out demons. Yeah, that's neat. But you want to know something really amazing? You're going to heaven. You've been saved from hell. That's what you should really be stoked about. I'll tell you what, even if you feel like you've never done anything for Christ in your life, you've never had any exciting thing happen, you have already had the most incredible miracle in your life that you will ever experience. It's your salvation. The fact that you are saved in Christ is the greatest miracle you will ever experience. This is why, you know, some, some Christians, they get all you know, almost lost in this. Why? I want, I want to have this experience. I want to have that experience. I wish I could heal. I wish I could, you know, speak in tongues. I wish I could prophesy. I wish I could be a preacher. You know, and they want to have all these experiences. And those are great things, but I'll tell you what, they're nothing compared to the miracle you already have, which is that you've escaped hell, you've gone to heaven. Nothing that will ever happen in your Christian life is as big as that. That is the biggest single thing that will ever happen to you in this life or in eternity is to escape hell and to come to heaven. That's where the joy is. I mean, if I stop and think for a moment about the magnitude of my eternal salvation, it should absolutely dwarf anything else that I've experienced in my life, negative or positive. When I think of the hell that I've escaped and compare that to the trials of this life, the trials of this life are nothing. And when I think about the heaven that I've gained 
and compare that to the pleasures of this life, well, those pleasures are nothing. When I think about the hell that I've escaped and the heaven that I've gained, I mean, let's look at each of those. Think about the hell that you've escaped as a Christian. Uh, hell is, is real. It's the just punishment for my sins. I have sinned against an eternally and infinitely holy God. He is eternally glorious, infinitely glorious, and I've basically turned my back on that glory. I've committed an infinite and eternal crime that deserves an infinite and eternal punishment. The, the punishment has to fit the crime, and it does. And Christ uh, says that hell is that punishment. Um, I know sometimes people say, oh, hell, I don't know, is that really real? It's funny, people today are probably more likely to believe in heaven than in hell. Yeah, there's a heaven, but I'm sure if there's a hell, which is kind of convenient. But um, people don't really believe in hell, but it's, it's real. People say, isn't hell just a state of mind? I wish. But that's not what Christ taught. The reason we know about what hell is is because Jesus taught about it more than any other person in the Bible. And I think that's important because I think sometimes we think of Jesus as kind of, you know, this nice prophet of love. We have to remember, yeah, he did love, but he also taught more than anyone else in the Bible about hell. He, he made metaphors and, and parables that were terrifying. He used imagery that was really creepy because he taught about it more than anyone else. That's why we know that it's, it's a real place. And I'll tell you what, there's nothing that you and I have experienced in this life no trial, no suffering, no setback that anywhere comes close to the horrors of hell. If, if we were to be transported at this moment from this life in the next and we were to be taken to that lake of fire and we were to be taken to the dock that stands on the lake of fire and stand on the edge of the dock over the burning waves and if our toes were to dangle over and we were to stand there for a moment feeling the, the, the furnace-like heat of God's wrath and hearing the, the cries of the, the damned in hell, we would scream out, God, give me cancer. God, take away my job. You know, God, uh, take away my loved ones. Lord, you know, throw me into poverty, loneliness, illness. I don't care what you do to me in this life. Just don't let me go to that place. There is no thing that you and I have experienced in this life that even comes anywhere near hell. T take all the most horrible things that can happen in a human life, pack them all into somebody's experience, and that person hasn't even come to the gates of hell yet. Because nothing in this life compares with the fury and displeasure of God against sin. And that is where I deserve to be. But now, think about it. Even though I deserve to go to hell, God sent Jesus from heaven. And Jesus Christ came to save me. That's amazing. He died on the cross. You know, what was taking place on the cross? Was it, was it Jesus' political statement? Was he just sort of giving us an example of sacrifice? No, no. He was taking the penalty for my sins. On the cross, the, the gavel of divine justice was slamming down on Jesus when it should have slammed down on me. He took my place. On the cross, the, the, the burning fury of God was poured out on Jesus so that the cool waters of salvation could be poured out on me. On the cross, God was saying to Jesus, guilty, so he could say to me, innocent. On the cross, God was frowning on Christ so that he could smile on me. On the cross, Jesus endured my hell so that I could receive his heaven. That's what was taking place. And now... I'm going to heaven. <laughs> I'm saved. You, you know, we shouldn't be going. Ah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, think about it. 
I'm going to heaven. Not, I hope I'm going to heaven. Gee, wouldn't that be great? I can tell you, I know that I'm going to heaven. I know for certain. Why? Because I'm a pastor? No. Because I've led a good life? No. Because I'm a nice guy? No. I know I'm going to heaven because it has been covenanted in the blood of Jesus Christ. Because He died for me. I know that I'm saved. And that I'm headed to eternal life. And so, you know, what do I have to worry about? It's like, yeah! I'm going to heaven. And now, instead of being uh, trampled on as an enemy of God in hell, I'm going to be embraced as a son of God in glory. Instead of wailing and gnashing my teeth in hell forever, I'm going to be singing praises. I'm going to be worshiping God in heaven forever. Instead of being uh, thrown into the pit of hell as a condemned criminal, I'm going to be accepted on the streets of gold in heaven as a citizen of heaven. Heaven is my future. And I'll tell you what, heaven's better than any pleasures of this life. Just as hell is worse than any horrors of this life, heaven's better than any pleasures. I mean, think of the most ideal human life you could ever imagine. If you could start from scratch and write for yourself the best human life possible, what would it be? What if you could have all the money you wanted, all the, the success you wanted, all the sex you wanted, all the food you wanted, all the entertainment you wanted, all the fame you wanted, all the things that we think are important that make life good, put it into one life, and I'll tell you, that's not even a raindrop compared to the ocean of joy that is in heaven because heaven is with God it's being in his presence and that's where I'm going (laughs) I know it because Christ died for me and you can know it too and so no wonder we should be happy that's why I say Christians should be eternally joyful that's why I say we should always have this stream of carbonation uh, you know so to speak these uh, helium balloons coming up from our souls because we've escaped hell and we're going to heaven and that's the bottom line and uh, the thing is of course we forget that I forget that I'm not preaching to you I'm just talking about my own life here really uh, I get caught up in stress and issues in life and, and conflicts and things I'm worried about and setbacks and, and they just kind of you know the temporal world just closes in on my vision and it's at those times I've got to come back to the basics to the cross to heaven and hell and I've got to remember I'm saved that's, that's where I come back and tap into the joy of my salvation. I know some Christians think that, you know, yeah, yeah, you come to Jesus and you, He died on the cross, but then you go on to the really important things of Christianity. Well, I don't know what those really important things are. To me, it's the cross. You know, you become a Christian by coming to the cross of Jesus, and I believe that you grow as a Christian by staying there. There's no other thing to move on to. It's, it's the cross of Christ. I keep coming back to that basic truth and, and as I do, and as I remember those basic truths that I am Christ, that I am saved, that I am His, that's where my joy comes from. It's kind of like um, you know, looking at a wedding album when you're married. Dig the old wedding album out. Go back to the basics. Uh, uh, Jennifer and I do this. We, we have our wedding album. You know your wedding album if you're married? You paid like 500 bucks for it. And you had this photographer who was like just everywhere during the ceremony, you know, and you're smiling all day, and you get all these pictures, and you pick them, and you do all this work to get this wedding album, then you stick it on your shelf and you have a look at it, right? That's, that's your wedding album. Well, you know, to make sure that we, never, that we look at it sometimes, we have a, a tradition in our house, maybe you do too, if you're married, we, we dig out our wedding album on our anniversary, and we pull it out, we sit down with the whole family, we talk about all the pictures, and we go through all the pictures. So at least once a year, we crack the thing <laughs> and look at all this money we spent on it. And, uh, and, and it's, it's great, because when you look at those pictures, it, it's kind of, you know, pictures, uh, they just bring you back. I, I get feelings, I have memories, 
I see the way I'm smiling at my wife in the pictures. I'm like, yeah, I remember how I felt on that day. I remember all that stuff. And, and it's good. It brings me back to my first love, to the important things. And God has a wedding album for us. It's His holy word. And we need to open it daily, not once a year, but daily. And we need to read it. And we need to be reminded of what God has done for us because this world is like scrambling your brains all the time and scrambling our focus. There's a, there's a spiritual haze that separates us from, from heaven and we have to keep pushing that aside and we do that through the Word. And here in this wedding album, we read about Jesus' love for us and we're reminded of, of the basics. And so this is just a constant discipline, a constant battle as a Christian. It's never going to come easy. Don't expect it to. It's never going to just fall into place magically. We have to constantly keep coming back to the Word and remembering our salvation. And that's where you will find a deep reservoir of joy. That's where you'll draw with joy water from the wells of salvation. But it's not just for Christians. I I just also want to say, if anyone here doesn't know Christ, or isn't certain if you know Christ, maybe you say, oh, I hope I'm going to heaven. I think I'm going to heaven. I want you to be able to say, I know I'm going to heaven. And you can know that. And the way you know that is through Christ. Um, I was reading this story. It was about this couple that was uh, stranded on a highway during a blizzard. I think it's kind of like the blizzard of 78. You know, came real suddenly and people got trapped on the highway. And, and in this story, the rescuers found this couple and they, were, they had died in the night. They had froze to death in their car. And it was really sad that they opened up the glove box and inside the glove box was a note that the woman had written. And it simply said, I don't want to die like this. And the really sad thing was that right next to the car was one of those big buses, you know, that goes on those touring buses and they have a bathroom in the back and they're all nice and plush. You know, those, those big buses. And it was full of people who were also trapped in the same storm. But apparently they had enough gas to keep the motor running throughout the night and it was warm inside. And, you know, the people kind of, it's kind of like a party in there, I guess, is what they said. You know, they're all sort of trapped together. They said, oh, whatever, we're trapped. Let's make the best of it. And they were eating, and it was, you know, stayed up all night, and the lights were on, and the, pl- the bus was warm. And it was just like right outside their car, but, you know, they didn't see it because of all the, you know, snow and everything. And, and you know, it's so sad. They could have just got out of their car and got on the bus. And the fact is that right next to you, are, there's people sitting next to you in the pews who are Christians. And they have a, a warmth and a joy and a happiness in their souls that you need. And it's not that they're better than you. They aren't. It's not that they're smarter than you. They aren't. It's not they're superior to you. They aren't. In fact, they're just like you. The only difference between a Christian and a non-Christian, the only difference is that the Christian has been saved by the grace of Christ. And the good news is you can be saved by the grace of Christ just as well. There's, there's no rule that says you're excluded. You just have to come to him and believe in him and you will be saved. There is still room on the bus. There is a joy that you can have, the joy of salvation, that will totally uh, blow away anything you've ever experienced in this life. Let's pray. If you've never given your life to Christ or if you aren't sure and you'd like to know for certain that heaven is your home, I'm just going to pray a simple prayer. I've prayed this before, but I'm just going to pray a few sentences at a time. And if you want to come to Christ and put your faith in Him, you just repeat this prayer silently and make it your own prayer after I pray a sentence at a time. And the prayer goes like this. 
Lord Jesus Christ, I do admit that I am a sinner who has broken your laws. And I admit that I deserve hell. But Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross to save sinners like me. Jesus, wash away my sins and forgive me. And let me know that heaven is my home and that you are my God. And Lord, I want to pray for my other brothers and sisters in Christ here that for all of us that we might experience that joy of our salvation. Not that we have to be slap-happy dopey, but that that there's, there's a, a well of joy in us that cannot be extinguished. Lord, I pray for any brother or sister here who's depressed. I pray for any brother or sister here who's discouraged. I pray for anyone here who is um, on the brink of utter despair. Lord, would you show them the glory of Jesus and lift them out of this pit? It may take a little while, God. It may take a process. But I pray, Lord, bring them up now. Lift them up. Give them hope. Help them to see your great love for them. Lord Jesus, show them the cross. Bring them back to the cross and let them know that they are saved through the blood of Christ, that they can have confidence before you. Lord Jesus, rescue us from despair. Rescue us from cynicism and, and um, negativity and criticalness. Lord, help us to be filled up with the joy of Christ and of our salvation, that we might praise you forever. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. invite you to open your hymnal to hymn number 340. 340. We turn our eyes to the Lord, to Jesus, as we prepare for his table. come to communion, we come to celebrate the death of Christ for us on the cross. We come to remember 
what Jesus did. Communion is, is such an amazing mix of emotions and perspectives. On the one hand, it's, of course, it's very solemn. We're thinking about the death of Christ. It should be, so the communion table should be approached very seriously as we think about our own lives and, and our walk with Christ. It should be a time of reflection and, and self-analysis. But it's also, it's also a time of rejoicing. It's also a time when we should be almost dancing in the aisles. You know, it's, it's the celebration of what Christ has done. And so it's this mixture of, of solemnity, but also joy and happiness with which we come to this table where we remember that Jesus Christ was crucified for us. These elements are a symbol of His death on the cross for us. The bread symbolizes His body. The cup symbolizes His blood shed for us. He's not literally in these things. Jesus is in heaven. This isn't literally his body and blood. But he's here with us too. I think that's what makes communion special. Through his Holy Spirit, Christ is the host. And he's the one serving us at his table. And so we come to commune with Christ who is really present with us at this time. Um, So I ask the elders to join me here at the communion table as we celebrate as a church what Jesus has done for us, our salvation in him. We remember on the night before Jesus went to the cross, he took some of the unleavened bread, the matzah bread, and he gave it a new symbolic meaning. He broke it and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And uh, Tim Ells, would you give thanks for the broken body of Christ? Heavenly Father, what a great gift you gave us through your Son, that we can come with joy into your presence instead of suffering in hell. Lord, it's a great cost to you to give up your son for us. To that we're grateful. Thank you for the body of Christ. As the elders bring these around and pass them out, I'd invite you just to take this time to pray, to give thanks for your salvation, to confess your sins, to worship Christ, and to spend this time with him.
Jesus Christ was broken so that we could be made whole. Let us joyfully eat together. And then we remember that at the end of the Passover meal, Jesus took a cup of wine and he gave it a new symbolic meaning as well. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. And could the elders join us again? And Rick, good enough, would you give thanks for the shed blood of Christ? Father God, we continue our communion with you as we think about the shed blood that your son Jesus had uh, given for us that we might be seen by you as whole and pure. Even though we we sin and fall short uh, all the time. We thank you for that reconciliation, for that blood that you shed for our sins. We ask that you bless us now as we partake of this fruit of the vine that reminds us of that blood that was shed. In Jesus' name.
drink together. After the service, um, if you'd like prayer, the elders are here. If there's anything going on in your life, maybe you're trying to find that joy and it's just not there, maybe we could pray for you. Come on up after the service. Or the elders will be here. We'd love to pray with you. And then downstairs, join us for coffee for about 10-15 minutes. Matt Carlson is one of our church members, and he's just come back from a short-term mission trip in Honduras, and he's going to be doing a brief presentation on what that was. So come on downstairs for a few minutes, get some coffee, and hear from Matt. There's also information about upcoming Sunday school classes this summer down there. Um, Now, would you stand, and uh, let me close the service in prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, right now you are so uh, great in our eyes. And yet I know, God, I'm going to walk out those doors and I'm going to start being attacked by the world, by the devil, by my own flesh, by my own sinful nature. Lord Jesus, stay large in my eyes this week. May this vision of you, of, of your greatness and your glory and your sacrifice, not diminish this week. Help me, Lord, to be a, a living light. And I pray, God, the joy just might be coming out of me that you might give us the joy of your salvation. So that, Lord, as we go out this week, uh, people would see that joy, they would feel that warmth, and that we might be able to speak the name of Jesus this week, wherever we go. Help us to do it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.